Out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. everybody and welcome again to the good trash genre cast where a bunch of people gather around a table and we discuss the films that you will not and i don't know maybe you would perhaps but i kind of doubt nah, it nah. discuss in film studies course we apply analysis there we are all about being academic and accessible and so we are going to be talking about the uh, documentary film shadow of a vampire <laughs> in which we <laughs> find out that vampires are real and one was on the set of the film nosferatu from 1922 or maybe not it's our most Wonderful time of the year here, good trash, because it's Shocktober. That's right. It's all horror all the time for the month of October, dear listener, and so we're very excited to be in the scary, uh, all up in the scary for you all, yes. Well, I think we should probably identify ourselves so they know who we are. So, to my right, sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and I'll eat the script girl later. Ah, very good, very good. To my left, ma'am, who are you? My name's Alexandra Bohannon. And I feed like an old man peas, sometimes all at once, sometimes drop by drop. <laughs> can confirm. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. You're My welcome. name is Dustin Sells, and do we really need the writer? No. 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 False. False. So, uh, yes, indeedy, we are doing a meta film. It's a musical. It's really like Singing in the Rain with more blood. <laughs> Something like that. Significantly Something. more blood in which we discuss <laughs> Shadow of the Vampire by E. Elias Marriage. Um, I hope it's marriage. Marriage. I doubt he'll 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 ever listen to this. He'll ever listen to this. I doubt he will. Well, we are in Oklahoma. Now you've seen some of his other stuff, haven't you? <laughs> I have also sampled his wares. I certainly have. All right, oh, we're moving. I do declare. Uh, okay. Wow. I don't know what's happened to us. It's uh, the good trash Southern cast. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's right, dear listener. Uh, we are going to be having a good time talking about this. Now, we want to warn you, though, this is not a review show. It is an analysis show, and that means that we will spoil the film from 1922 and perhaps also the film uh, in question. And so we just want to warn you right now, we'll give you a brief moratorium, and I think that's a good word to be using in Shocktober, uh, about spoiler ridges in which we give our synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema and then our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, uh, and then we'll play our game. Our game does get into mild spoiler territories uh, with the film in question, also with other films, perhaps, but we try to keep that as mildly spoilerific as possible, but once we get down to business, and that business being analysis, spoilers are definitely on the table, and you have been warned. So, without any further ado, voice of the cinema, the Dr. Reverend Bishop, James Arthur Gordon. Let's hear that synopsis. How'd you know that was my real first name? I didn't know. I just made that up. That's impressive. The filming of Nosferatu is hampered by the fact that its star, Max Shrek, is taking the role of a vampire far more seriously than seems humanly possible. (laughs) 
okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's some protection in that sort of yeah. phraseology, and I will grant it that, I suppose. Did you see trailers for this when it came out? N- Do you remember any? No. I, it, I mean, no. It, wasn't a, it was an independent film, right? Yeah, it was a movie that was sort of off my radar when I was small. I'm I mean, wondering, what, what is the year again on this? 2000. 2000. Yeah. 2000. So I was 19. I mean, I... I was wondering if the trailers like kept it kind of aloof as to as far as his particular role yeah, in the know. film. Hmm, no, I, I haven't seen anything to know. So, dear listener, if you've seen the trailers, by all means, uh, shout out to us on the social medias, and uh, we will hear about that. But let's go ahead and hear those quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews uh, as to what we thought of our experience of the film. Alexander Bohannon, what do you think of Shadow of the Vampire? Um, The thing I said in the group chat after watching this movie, and I think this is the best way to, to describe this experience, is... I would rather be watching Nosferatu. Like, this movie makes me just want to watch that film instead of watching this movie. Um, And I think that's too... It's not a compliment. I think that's a critique. Because this movie tries to do a lot of cool stuff. And, And a lot of stuff that is cool actually happens, but about... Halfway through, you're just like, I'm so bored. Like, I'm really bored and over this movie. And then whenever you get to the climactic scene, um, yeah, that's, like, really exciting and terrifying and all this stuff. But, yeah, for this big middle portion, they wind us up and it's like, okay, we get all the pieces set in motion and then... I'm just really bored and until we get to the ending piece there. So, I mean, instead of watching this movie, you could just go watch Nosferatu, a good, a good print of it because there are terrible prints out there. And I think we have all experienced them. Um, Get a good print of Nosferatu. Imagine that Max Shrek is a vampire. And I mean, I think you've captured this movie's (laughs) experience really in a, in in a better, in a better, more enjoyable way. I I think that's probably fair. Thank you very much for that. Miss Alexander Bohan and Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you think in terms of your review, sir? I love this film's premise like no other. I think it's just a fantastic idea. So yeah, yeah, I I, I love it, um, and it, it seems so obvious. Like I'm I'm surprised we don't see more of these types of films where they kind of play with these what if scenarios of these older films. I I think it's just great. I mean, you guys, we watched Bewitched this summer. Is that yeah. not this premise? Yeah, it is. Yeah, what it is in a lot of ways? Yeah. She's actually a witch. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's just so much fun to do that. Um, I think Defoe is fantastic. Uh, the editing is great and even elevates Defoe's performance because, uh, from what I understand, they splice a lot of the actual Nosferatu footage into the film, and it kind of bleeds in without distraction, which I think speaks to Defoe's performance here as well. That being said, the film is stretched thin, and I never felt necessarily bored while watching it. Just It never really goes anywhere. It, mm-hmm. it, like Alex said, just winds us up, and then it's like, it's so stretched thin. Like They had this great premise, but they couldn't figure out how to flesh it out into a full story. Yeah. And I think that's where it falls apart. Um and the other major flaw for me is that the tone and mood are all over the place. It wants to blend the dark comedy and horror thing, uh, but never really succeeds. And there are a few moments and a few intense moments, but uh, they seem to uh, they seem in contrast and kind of contradict what's happening uh, throughout. And so at the end of the day, I think it's fine. Uh, I think it's a lot of wasted potential and promise, though. Mm-hmm. And and it's weird because when this movie came out, it was critically very well received. I know oh, yeah. Ebert gave it, it a very very good review very good review is one of his top 10 films of the year so it's <sighs> it's kind of interesting I, I just don't think it's aged well no no definitely not sir you are destroying my production um that's what i want to say uh to <laughs> all of you i really like this movie well, I mean, and you're I, a sucker for vampires well, pops there there is something there um and i do love the vampires and i do love nosferatu and i do love the uh the what if aspect and yeah. I, I mean i definitely there are places where the 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 plotting gets a little soggy is what I would say, uh, especially in that second act. 
but it, it, it's it's absolutely just fantastically fun, and it's 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 this way of sort of dealing with uh, artistry and uh, dealing with this sort of. Uh, impossible or difficult artist uh, where we have both uh, F.W. Murnau played by John Val- Malkovich and also uh, the uh Max Shrek being played by Willem Dafoe, where they're both very, very difficult to work with and how you have to sort of put up with that uh, because they are uh, brilliant at what they do. And I, I find that sort of send-up to be really, really interesting. Yeah. And as you say, the way that they're able to work in uh, actual shots from Nosferatu seamlessly into the film is is really, really well done. Yes. Um, I Also, just the way that the vampire death scene is sort of captured there towards the end, I'll say more about that anon, I found that to be a, sort of a, a really inspired and brilliant cinematic touch uh, with what they do there and so uh, for my my money uh, the performances are great again the sort of deep Hollywood stuff that's going on also the way that the, the film is able to interact with sort of broader and greater vampire lore uh, there there's a moment uh, where our actress our lead actress is reenacting a scene that was uh, created in Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, from 1992 where she's writhing upon the bed which is not really in the novel but it is in that and it, the way they were able to interact those sort of things in a way that just makes it so meta and for my money so much fun so it's a movie i really really enjoyed a lot uh for that but i as with with you guys i do see some of the flaws but um they made this movie for me this is this is made for dustin you know filmmaking here Yeah. yeah i mean you're just the target demo and we accept that that's fair i've i i gotta know can you capture a vampire on camera oh because they don't cast reflection right yeah yeah, yeah that, well, that's isn't there mirrors question. in the camera? Like, yeah, that's what I was because she doesn't show up in the mirror when you know because that's one of the and things that freaks, freaks her out. out. In the last yeah, scene. yeah, it's it's a chemical process with film, right? Where uh, sort of there's a reaction to the nitrate, uh, silver nitrate emulsion. Uh, by the way, silver nitrate. I'm just saying it repels Ew. vampires. There's something going on there anyway. Um, in which it's uh, by nature sort of combustible, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I would I would guess though because it is a chemical process uh, less than a light process. Uh, that there's something going on there. But the actual science, you know, quote-unquote, <laughs> scare quotes, of uh, the, the inability of a vampire to cast a reflection uh, does sort of uh, cause one to at least um, question, if not sneer, at the idea uh, that they're able to be captured on film. So, no, you make a, you make a good point, sir. Um, but we're talking about vampires, for crying out loud. Oh, so, I'm gay. I just thought it was kind yeah. of interesting that they were able to capture on film, but not in... Oh man, mirrors. I love it whenever people find just like a very plot-breaking plot hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, dear listener. So now you know sort of where our biases lay. Um, I'm more pro, they're more meh. And uh, that's, I think, probably a fair assessment of that. I think it's now, though, time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. This week's game is our favorite what-if scenarios. That's right, our favorite what-if scenarios, brought to you by Shadow of the Vampire. Shadow of the Vampire, William Defoe is actually a vampire, IRL. <laughs> I can believe it. He's not acting at all. No, he's no, just he's not. himself. Yeah. <laughs> William Defoe is a vampire. I'd, I'd, I'd buy it. I'd yeah. believe it. Yeah. yeah. I want to see... Now, if we want to go down that meta, (laughs) this meta plot hole is the fact that William Dafoe is a real vampire vampire playing in Shadow of a Vampire, (laughs) uh, playing Max Shrek, who is a a vampire. Holy cow. Here it is. Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, right? And and William Dafoe is a vampire. Oh, my God. On the set of that. Make that for me now. Need. 
Do it now. Okay, so that's the game we're going to play. And uh, just as my ridiculous Spider-Man pitch came to my mind, we are going to make those kinds of pitches of these sort of crossover slash uh, in real life what if type films. I'm very very excited to hear what my co-hosts have to say. I'm going to go to you first, Arthur Gordon. What are your selections? First, this is you could either either or Cloverfield or Godzilla. Okay, both events really occurred. But the government and other shadow organizations covered them up and called them either war acts or uh, natural disasters and fed that to the, the media. But these are actually, you know, Godzilla really destroyed Japan. And Dang then it. we just worked with Japan to kind of cover it up and say, you know, we dropped a bomb on them or whatever. That is interesting. Yeah. I like that. And so, you know, because I, I believe those things exist in the water. I don't trust them. Uh, the second one, Harry Potter. Uh, uh, J.K. Rowling discovered this hidden school by mistake and through the approval of McGonagall uh, was allowed to tell the fictitious tale of, quote, Harry Potter uh, by giving the characters fake names so they wouldn't be discovered in real life. J.K. Rowling worked for the Ministry of Magic to convince us muggles that it doesn't actually exist. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, The last one is uh, The Prestige. Uh, Because the experiments of Angier were uh, getting so out of control with the... uh, technology that he borrowed from tesla uh tesla had to turn to the last man anyone would expect him to t- team up with uh mr thomas edison uh, to try and stop the escalating battle between magicians and protect his technology oh my goodness wow okay very fun those are my what if scenarios for you all right well thank you very much mr arthur gordon ms alexander bohan and what are your selections my selections um what if what if what if Men in Black was a documentary? Oh, yes. you are not. Okay, go ahead. That was yeah. one of mine. <laughs> Dang it. Drat well, you. No, it's yeah. fine. I mean, but it's so, so there. It's oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, what if we live in a world in which both X-Men and Animorphs are real? <laughs> <laughs> and just seeing these two universes... Collide. meat yes. i just want to see that i, do I don't too. know if i don't even know if that's really a what if thing i just want to see it i don't care <laughs> would the animorphs become x-men with like charles oh like, hey, shit yeah hey, of course powers. they would be yeah well and then it kind of adds into this oh man and then you could get another crossover so it's like a trifecta because as you remember in the animorphs universe it's be- there it's like an alien war thing yeah. so you could bring in guardians of the galaxy into it too yeah oh my yeah. god i'm so so on board with peter this. quill takes on the yurk Oh, the Yurk. Ah, it's so good. Okay. And then finally, I watched an episode. This requires a little explanation. I watched an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants the other day because it's like the perfect need to vaguely pay attention but not pay attention kind of background noise. And there's this episode called Squeaky Boots that is basically, it should be an episode of the Twilight Zone. So the premise of it is that Mr. Krabs give tricks SpongeBob out of money and gives him these squeaky boots. And then like he's so he Mr. Krabs is so plagued with guilt over this is that he can't stop hearing the squeak. Oh wow. <laughs> and so it ends, you know, in a SpongeBob way, it's like a happy ending, but I want to see the Twilight Zone version of this yeah. episode of Squeaky Boots in which Mr. Krabs like of course like has to like cut off his he cuts off his own ears or something yeah. ridiculous just sitting to, alone in a straitjacket yeah. staring at the wall. Yeah, he can all, Yeah, because like there's this thing where it, it gets to a point where he only can when people are talking to him, they just make squeaking noises and he's like, "Ah!" and he looks up at a clock and it's just making like the ticking noises squeak and 
all the let all the numbers are say squeak and the, like the menu is printed and it just says squeak and, and like it's such a really i was like yeah. this is such a dark concept for a children's show but now i just want to see a twilight zone version of it that's 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 dark one of the circles of hell i'm pretty sure yeah it's, everything squeaks <laughs> yeah oh my goodness the episode ends with him losing his mind he fries the boots eats them <laughs> and then he after he eats them he like gets the hiccups later and just keeps squeaking oh, like himself man. That's it's so good yeah eats him with uh, fava beans and a nice can tea perhaps <laughs> oh come on you didn't have to do the sound you guys are disgusting all righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohan. And I was going to mention Men in Black as something of a real-life documentary. Um, and as you were speaking, I want to go further with your Twilight Zone idea. What if Rod Serling was hired by the NSA and the FBI to yes. put out these stories as sort of yes. counter-propaganda oh, of yes. real-life weird, crazy shit. stuff that goes down oh, in the God. world? And because it's on TV and in this cheesy, schlocky you know, thing yeah. as as uh, the Twilight Zone, but they're all actually real things. Yeah, like the the thing on the airplane wing, yeah. and oh man, that that movie needs to get made now. Yeah, that would be fun. Man, right? that's incredible. You need to direct that movie. No, I, no, let's do it. Uh, okay, okay, well, let's team up. We'll Hollywood, give me all the money. I promise the movie yes. will be fine. It'll be fine. Give us ninety million dollars. You won't regret anything. Uh, my my last selection though is um, and this was inspired by um, Mr. Arthur Gordon and his great many uh, pops and other action figures. Um, we have here in front of me an Edward Scissorhands action figure, and as uh, some have observed in the past, Edward's outfit is not unlike that of the Cenobites in the Hellraiser series. And so I want to deal with Edward not as the creation of one Vincent Price, but as uh, the tormenting demon of Vincent Price, having been called him. <laughs> somehow trapped in our world and then he goes down into suburbia and opens all their lurid pleasures and desires and tortures them and ends it in a bloodbath okay so now this is this is taking out your um cinnabite you know the hellraiser fandom cinnabite uh sorry hellraiser cross with clerks where <laughs> pinhead has to work at a Cinnabon, <laughs> and, he, and it's just him serving Cinnabites, and so it's like a clerk style, like Jay with Jay and Silent Bob, and then you just have Pinhead there. <laughs> I was gonna say it also. I mean, for the most part, Edward Scissorhands just looks like a kid that worked at Hot Topic in the nineties. Yeah, oh enough. shit. <laughs> That's I'm, true. I'm just with imagining pants Douglas and all. Bradley, you know, doing the sort of behind the plexiglass. You ask for the cigarettes. We came with them. You are getting cancer and dying. What more do you want? Oh, my gosh. Wow, that is something. Well, thank you very much for that, dear co-host, dear listener. We'd love to hear your favorite what-if scenarios. You can do that via those magical means that we all know as social media. We want to hear about that stuff right now so this conversation can keep going. I go to you, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Is there a way in which they can talk to us on the interweb? Sure thing, Dustin. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash good trash media. You can find us at Twitter at good underscore trash. You can find us on Instagram at good trash media. And you can find us at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash GTM. Thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Um, Arthur, I think we have one other push that we want to make right now as far as our interactions go. What is that, sir? Yeah, uh, you could also, uh, it would be really beneficial. One of the greatest things you could do to help us is just head over to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, that really helps us by pushing our numbers up in iTunes and kind of getting us uh, more notice and more uh, visible to 
just passersby who are looking for new shows to pick up. So if you, you know, take a second and go over there, rate that, we would appreciate that greatly, dear listener. Absolutely, absolutely. We realize that not everyone can give a dollar a month or more on Patreon, but what we, we, we do know for sure is that iTunes is absolutely free to you to do, and it is so helpful to us. So at the cost of free 99, uh, if you want to go ahead and uh, register up with iTunes and give us a rating and a review, that would be very, very helpful. Okay, well, with all of this sort of talk, about uh, our popularity and being reviewed and Patreons and all that kind of stuff, I think we probably ought to take a moment and hear a word from our sponsors. That chill running up and down your spine isn't your imagination. It's Loot Crate's October theme, horror. We're taking over 40 years of creepy, campy, bloody icons and putting them in this month's crate. Channel your best final girl with items from The Walking Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Halloween. You have until the 19th of October at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. Make sure to head to www.lootcrate.com forward slash good trash and enter code good trash one word to save $3 off of any new subscription today. Thank you very much to the nice folks at Loot Crate for your sponsorship. We appreciate that very, very much. I'm on pins and also needles. Um, Just like Pinhead. Um, I'm on... Boom. Well, there you go. Um, I'm on pins and pines and cones. I don't even know. I'm just uh, working this whole thing out in my head as I go, but I want to hear what you have to say, Miss Alexander Bohannon, in terms of your analysis. Well, I thought that this would be a really, really excellent time to talk a little bit more production side in my analysis. And so today we're going to talk about method acting and abusive directors, because we see both of these kind of lampooned to their natural, natural extreme in conclusion in this film. Over the summer, we kind of got some more notoriety on the school of method, method acting whenever we kept on hearing story after story after story about Jared Leto's Joker at the release of Suicide Squad. This got so big and substantial with, you know, Jared Leto sending, you know, decapitated pigs to people, used condoms, live rats, you know, like nasty, gnarly stuff to his co-workers and his uh, co-stars that The Atlantic wrote a piece about how Hollywood has ruined method acting. Now, I know that Jared Leto's Joker postdates anything we see in this film, um, you know, the fictionalized account of uh, Nosferatu from the 20s. But I do think it's a really interesting starting point contemplate the the reasons why people use method acting and when people take it too far because the whole just beyond the the whole just behind method acting is to elicit truths from your own emotional experience in order to insert them in a role and and I think that can add some legitimacy it can add some emotional integrity to what you're doing on the screen or on the stage however whenever and this is the the tricky point and this is what is discussed in this Atlantis at in this Atlantic 
essay is the fact that whenever it becomes less about the truth of the performance and being honest to the character and more about oh man look at all the crazy stuff they had to do to get into this role like um leonardo dicaprio sleeping in a whatever he slept in didn't he sleep in an like animal a cave or, or a bear or something he like slept like a in a bear, bear. Or, or, elk carcass maybe yeah, yeah an like elk a, some wild animal. yeah and, you know whenever we get to the point where we're saying that these performances are the most legitimate because they're legitimately doing the things that's not acting anymore. (laughs) That's, that's just doing these, you know, these brave man stunts in order to add some more panache to your resume. And that's the big thing that this Atlantic article is arguing is the fact that whenever you have method acting take to its very extreme conclusion, that's whenever you have people just doing things in order to get attention, to get notoriety. And I know that Max Shrek is portrayed by William Defoe in this film. I mean, he is legitimately a vampire. He is just manipulating the system and he is buddied up with an abusive director as in portrayed. I don't know if Murnau was actually abusive. We don't probably have any information. I'm certain he probably was. It was, it was the twenties and and deregulated, (laughs) you know? And so you have a a very, a director who's going to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. I mean, including, and this is just the real life component of it. The fact that Bram Stoker's wife didn't want Dracula made into a movie. He's like, fuck, I'm doing it anyway. Change all the names. Boom. You know, like, I mean, he was a man who wanted to get what he wanted. He was going to elicit these performances to the point where he's encouraging these extreme method performances by uh, Max Shrek and um, sacrificing his lead actress and most of his crew in order to get the performance he wants. And now I'm going to transition into talking about abusive directors because I think we, we forget sometimes that we, we on the Good Trash genre cast and the Good Trash Media Network, we talk a lot about Stanley Kubrick. We talk a lot about Alfred Hitchcock to the point where we have a Hitchcock podcast. The very first episode of, of Alfred, your Alfred Hitchcock show, uh, the cast that knew too much on Good Trash Media, was talking about The Birds, which is notoriously an abusive production to the point where they threw live birds at Tippy, and she's legitimately terrified actually getting hurt um and in hitchcock was not afraid to push these actors to their breaking point and legitimately hurting them in order to get these quote real performances and and that's the point of of no return so whenever we get to to Murnau hiring Shrek, who's actually a vampire, and bringing this all together and sacri- sacrificing his lead actress. This, this itself, this whole concept is lampooning Hollywood. It's lampooning the, the fact that Stanley Kubrick was so abusive to Shelley Duvall to elicit this um, terrified, broken woman performance, um, which does impact the movie. It makes the movie just insane and and challenging to watch but the fact that it that it took that much to get there is in itself problematic and and sad and distressing um going i into a more recent example the fact that uh the director the two lead actresses of blue is the warmest color which we have also done an episode on and on the good trash genre cast neither of them will work with that director again because he was so abusive and intense and a terrible person to to work with apparently that sex scene which lasted five minutes in the finished film uh was a 10-day shoot what yeah and that that dude's just not a director he's just a perv yeah like that's that's 
disgusting, <laughs> I'd say. And the thing is, is this another article that talks about why do film directors abuse their actors um, gives me this gives this final point, which I want to make is the fact that um, if it's necessary to resort to abuse to get these performances, no matter how great the film Perhaps the director is just in the wrong job. And the awareness that the violence is real and not sim- simulated has the opposite effect of that intended, has the opposite effect of intended, it takes you out of the film. And that's the thing that can be really hard about watching some of these. I mean, I had it, like, it was hard for me to watch when they drug Greta and to get her to lay down and just let Max Shrek drink her blood. Like, that was like so hard for me to watch. And, and, and it didn't take me out of the film, but. If I knew something like that had happened, quote, in real life, I mean, how could you watch a snuff film? I mean, no one's championed snuff films, but directors take it almost there lots of the time. And it does sort of trouble your watching, you know. I mean, William Friedkin is a great example of this sort of thing. Also firing off guns in front of Father Karras and slapping people in the face and those kind of things for reaction shots. And uh, that that sort of level of abuse, it does, uh, because it never stays secret. Those things are never held in. And when those things do occur, they do sort of color your viewing of the film, and it detracts from the art. Yeah. I mean, I read somewhere that the original Ben-Hur, at least a couple people died in the chariot race sequence. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it just makes you realize, I mean, isn't the point... Again, going back to the the point of acting and the point of directing, the acting is at its heart pretend. Directing is eliciting the most truthful performance out of someone pr- playing pretend. But if if everyone is on this mentality of we can only get to a level of reality and conveying reality by actually doing these things, I think everyone's missing the point. And I do understand, like I've acted on stage and I've done a little like bit parts and, you know, movie, like some extra work, work in movies. I mean, I take a little bit of method into my performance, but I think just being so method to where you're not going to actually do your job and act, <laughs> that's that's whenever it becomes a problem. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that analysis, Ms. Alexander Bohan. And Mr. Arthur Gordon, what analysis have you brought for us today? I want to talk about the fear of death that we have, or, or maybe more than that, it's the fear of being forgotten. A video more so than books or pictures is one of the few ways we can live for eternity. Uh, and for many bright-eyed kids, the film industry equaled immortality. And often they lived uh, like they were immortal. They you know, had the money, they had the fame, and they were able to do you know, kind of all these extremely splendid things with it. And lived like they weren't going to die, I think. Uh, and, and Karina Longworth, you must remember this, is a great look into celebrity. And many of the tales uh, that she highlights, the, the, the actors and actresses of the studio era, um, are extremely tragic and follow a very similar arc. Uh, a young guy or gal gets discovered. They somehow find fame. They live like royalty. They get old and then they die, often alone, poor, and mostly forgotten. Uh, and it, it's there are a few, you know, rare, uh, you know, kind of uh, exemptions to the rule, you know, a chaplain who kind of found a way back after after some turmoil. But oftentimes you have a lot who do just kind of end up in tragic uh, in, in ends, I think. And, and it's really kind of unsettling to kind of realize just how destructive Hollywood was and filmmaking was 
at the time. Uh, and Sunset Boulevard is another great look at this, I think, and it's scarily accurate to the times and what was going on and, and the arc that plays out there. And things have changed quite a bit since the early days in the studio era. Um, and, and as Alex mentioned, the method acting, I don't, I feel like it's kind of lost its place of where it was mm -hmm. uh, when we first saw it with Brando and those guys, you know, that switch from the theatrical into this more realistic style. Uh, outside of, you know, it's it seems like the few examples that we see really portrayed are just really bad examples. Leto, DiCaprio, you know, I agree with that idea. I mean, DiCaprio shouldn't have won an Oscar for that performance because he subjected himself to a bunch of stupid stuff. Like, you shouldn't reward that, I don't think, you know. Uh, but I feel like outside of them, there are a few actors who still really do that method style. I mean, you have Christian Bale, who I think of, Tom Hanks, who I think of, maybe Matt Damon to some extent, uh, occasionally. But for the most part, we've we've had kind of quite a bit of change, and that has to do with a lot of laws that are passed as far as work and uh, you know how labor is handled on sets. Uh, actors and actresses are still famous and beloved, but they don't hold the same spot as they once did. With the expansion of media and social media, I think we are now feel more equal to these celebrities uh, insofar as we don't see them up on the screen and picture them as gods. We, we kind of share this life with them. We can follow them on Instagram or Twitter and keep up with their day-to-day -day life, and I think it humanizes them quite a bit. Um, in Shadow of the Vampire, Max represents the death of fame. Uh, he speaks often of being lonely and having lived uh, too long, and he even mentions drinking from the golden chalices of kind of remembering the days gone by. Uh, this is a man who once lived like royalty, and for him, the deal with Murnau uh, is a second shot at fame. It's it's that chance to recapture his glory days uh, and to regain his status. Uh, this would have been nothing unusual for many aging celebrities, and again, it's it's one of the driving elements behind uh, Sunset Boulevard. Um, it's you know what's pushing Norma Desmond to get this kind of her revival, her career restarted, and trying to get this meeting with the mill, which is just a tragic moment in the film. Uh, and for Max and for many celebrities, the silver screen, the fictional Max, just so anybody knows, you know, I'm not talking about the real Max Shrek, who had a pretty decent career and, you know, did his thing. Uh, but for the Max in the film uh, and for many celebrities, the silver screen was their chance at immortality. Uh, after all, the silver screen is essentially life in motion. And for many actors, one would probably wonder uh, if they wouldn't want to be remembered for the characters that they put on screen. Characters who were sweet, charming, happy, full of joy and life. A stark contrast to the personal demons that many celebrities had to face. Uh, Max, in fact, has his own demons, and, and in many ways he is a demon of sorts. Uh, he also represents Murnau's personal demons brought to life. Uh, Max has the struggle he must deal with. He talks about the tragedy of Dracula, a man who hasn't had servants in 400 years. Uh, this is a moment of reflection of an actor at the end of his career, reflecting back on the loneliness uh, that befell him after the spotlight fizzled out. It's his one last chance to get his leading girl, and because of his determination to get back what he lost, he brings everything else down with him. Uh, the people trying to help him are expendable to his dream. Often this is a symptom of addiction. Those who are struggling will often use up the people and resources that they have nearby who are trying to help. Uh, and this also reflects the lives of many of the stars of yesteryear. And to me, Shadow of the Vampire is a fascinating star study uh, looking back on an extremely flawed and often tragic system of doing things. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. And in fact, my analysis, I want to sort of connect the dots to some of the things you were talking about. As you were talking about this sort of search for immortality, as I was watching the film, uh, a couple French philosophers or French critics uh, were um, heavy in my mind. The first being André Bazin in his um, uh, essay, The Ontology of the Photographic Image, which appears in uh, his uh, What is Cinema book, Volume 1, edited by Hugh Gray. We find uh, this idea that 
um, cinema is a form of embalming that uh, it, it rather than sort of preserving the body in a way that it can be viewed in state, uh, the body and the image of the body is uh, preserved for you know infinity basically uh, when it comes to cinema. So uh, one of the things that happens when we watch movies is that we are in fact watching ghosts. We are watching sort of these eternalized uh, forms and characters. Uh, one of part of the uh, the great uh, sort of box office success that we had with uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, The Dark Knight was that it was, uh, to an extent, it was uh, part of a mourning. Um, it was part of a funeral service in which we were um, going by and viewing Heath Ledger one last time. And uh, so uh, a great, and it, much to a lesser extent, we had with the uh, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, which was the last film that he was working on at the time, and this sort of caught in by Johnny Depp and other actors, uh, came in and did some substitute stuff with Terry Yilm's work there. But it, it's this idea uh, of the eternality of the actual cinematic object, that it, it creates this, this situation in which we are uh, viewing the person, but we're not exactly viewing the person. We're, we're, we're sort of uh, an a image of it that has an ontology, a connection to to reality, yet it's somehow diverted from it. I think the selection of using Nosferatu for this sort of meta-cinema is a very, very appropriate example because, of, as we know, vampires do indeed live forever. And uh, so Max Schreck, the vampire himself being played by Willem Dafoe, is seeking to live to forever. And so part of the contract for Dafoe, though, very interestingly, though, is that he is uh, a vampire playing an actor who's playing a vampire. Um, but if you go even further with that, we have William Defoe, who is an actor who's playing a vampire, who is playing an actor playing a vampire, and and you know round and round we go down further the rabbit hole of sort of uh, meta ness, uh, meta cinematography, meta filmic, meta imagery. I don't even know what meta we, we're adding that prefix to, uh, <laughs> as far as its it, its uh, nomenclature goes. But there, there, there there's something really massive that's going on there. And what we're dealing with though, when we're dealing with film though, is this sort of dialogue with time. Not only the preservation of the image, but film itself speaks its language. Uh, because of its use of motion in terms of time. And so this film takes an aesthetic cue uh, about its, uh, again, the, the sort of timeliness and timelessness uh, of film uh, in a way that sort of follows Giles Deleuze's idea of the time image, the sort of second coming uh, in a cinema in which we move from the uh, movement image, um, which is sort of action-oriented and sort of uh, uh, driving towards plot, and this idea that we experience time of the images as they take place on screen. That's part of the reason for some of the stateliness and perhaps sogginess uh, in the plot. It does borrow at times uh, momentarily from sort of the what we call slow cinema or the uh, European art house aesthetic uh, that we uh, see when we watch the movie. And so this film is, is sort of playing with those ideas, but also playing with the idea that as time moves, there is a real degradation that happens in the image. And I cannot but think and be struck by Shrek's death scene, where uh, as the light comes in, as it does in the film, done wonderfully in the original 1922 film with a 35-degree held pane of glass to make him disappear. is one of the great in-camera optical effects of all time. Uh, as that, that is sort of happening, but it's actually happening in real life so to speak because the vampire is actually being exposed to sunlight and disappearing what we see is the film stock itself dissolving 
uh, which is one of the uh, one of the great problems with early cinema. Is this idea that uh, the films were not preserved; they were made from silver nitrate stock, which is highly combustible. It's also highly prone to corrosion and degradation over time. There is a great number of films that are lost. Nosferatu is not the first vampire or Dracula adaptation ever to be produced. It is just the oldest one that we still have. It's the oldest one that's still available to us. And uh, and then, you know, I, I turn you to Martin Scorsese's Hugo and sort of the tragedy of what happened with early cinema. The cellular was melted down and made in a lazy shoes, he, ladies' shoe heels and those kind of things. But when we engage film, we are engaging not only a process of time travel where we go backward, but we're also talking about sort of the establishment of artifacts and being able to see those things in time and also the relationship between actors and their moment and the moments that preceded them. That that film fundamentally is a time-oriented action in which time's arrow does not always go forward, but it also goes backwards and inside out and upside down. And uh, by doing that, it makes, I think, the appreciation and experience of cinema um, much more interesting and appreciable. And I just find that to be fascinating um, that's going on inside uh, this particular film. So there you go, dear listener. Um, there are our analyses um, about the film Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it and listen up and uh, recommend us to your friends, rate us on iTunes and all those kind of things. But we come to a point in our show now where we must render a verdict concerning this film. And I am curious to hear what is said. Mr. Arthur Gordon, I'm going to you first. The verdict is this, shelf or trash, else or instead. Go. I've got to say trash. I do. I don't think you have to watch this movie. I think it has some great ideas, but I think it just kind of doesn't see them all through their full potential. Instead, uh, watch Sunset Boulevard, as I mentioned, which I think works very well here, especially in lieu of reading about the kind of death of celebrity and fame. Also, The Artist uh, from just a few years ago, which is a a great movie. Uh, And then check out You Must Remember This. Uh, It's a great show about the early days of cinema and the Hollywood system and how that all worked. Uh, It's very fascinating to kind of hear these behind-the-scenes stories, Uh, but only do so after you've checked out and had your weekly dose of good trash. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what do you say? Shelf for trash, else, or instead? Trash. You don't need to see this movie. I mean, just think while you're watching Nosferatu, which is one of my insteads, uh, think Max Shrek is a vampire, and then you've got this movie covered. Like, you're good. <laughs> she actually dies at the end. There, you're good. So, um, that's my uh, recommendation for you. Um, so, instead of this film, you should check out, um, why not, 2005's Bewitched that we covered on the Good Trash Genre cast. <laughs> I like that movie. It was my host pick. I'm not ashamed, but it basically has the same plot, except it's a more poorly executed, probably, and it's a comedy. Well, I, it actually keeps my attention better than this movie does. Um, and uh, Will Ferrell is hilarious. Well, you opened up that with why not. Um, listen to that episode, dear listener, and find reasons, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> good call, good call. Um, I would also recommend to you, um, we mentioned this er- earlier, um, Hugo. That's a really great film that discusses the early days of cinema. You can watch Singing in the Rain. I love that movie so, 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 so much. Um, you should also watch uh, from 2015, Hail Caesar. Or was it earlier this year? feels like so long ago. It was this year. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can't believe that. 2016's Hail Caesar. If you want a modern take on that kind of meta commentary on the early days of cinema. Um, finally, last but not least, you should check out Mulholland Drive because everyone should have a poison love letter to Hollywood in their lives. 
Excellent, excellent. I fully, fully endorse all those suggestions. And I am going to go ahead and say shelf, but it is a very personal decision. I know myself, and for me, it's a shelfer. Oh, sure. But I also recognize that it's not for everyone. If you've heard what we've said so far, you probably have an idea if this is the sort of thing that's in your wheelhouse. Um, Again, I will endorse the suggestions made so far, and I will only make one other additional suggestion, as many of them were things I was thinking already, and that is F.W. Murnau's Faust. Uh, again, just more of this great German expressionism and an idea of what's going on uh, with that particular time period that's being depicted in the film. And I think it's definitely worth your time. So there you go, dear listener. That's our shelf and trash. That's our Elster instead. We'd like to hear what you have to say about all those things via those magical means of social media. So please, please uh, hit us up there and have that conversation with us because that's why we do this. We like movies anyway. We talk about this stuff all the time anyway. We really do this show and uh, put those uh, social media nodules out there those rhizomes out there so that we can encounter you and have a conversation with you about the movies. Now, the Shocktober train of murder keeps rolling right down the tracks. And um, (laughs) it's a very joyful sort of sound. Choo! Choo! Better. Better. (laughs) Well done. Um, We're going to go into something a bit more contemporary. We're going to be looking at the film It Follows next time, which is going to be an exciting time and conversation for you. And in the meantime, so check that out. Check out uh, Shadow of the Vampire. Check out anything and have a conversation because that's what makes watching the movies so worthwhile. It is about the conversation. If you need more conversation in your life, you want to talk about Hitchcock, check out our show, The Cast Who Knew Too Much. If you want to talk about the stuff that belongs on a film study syllabus like Nosferatu, check a, t- take a look at the film syllabus. If you want to hear about what's coming out right now in the movies, check out Back to the Movies. If you want to hear people talking about the movies, check out the people's history of film uh, and there's a great many other wonderful things available to you all there at the good trash media network check all that stuff out keep watching we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time the good trash genre cast is produced and edited by arthur gordon direction by dustin sells social media by alexandra bohannon caleb masters and dalton stewart our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genrecast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com.